Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on another at-home edition of At The Movies, Chris Hemsworth takes his muscular frame to Bangladesh to foil a kidnapping. Uh, name? Say your name, mate. Say your bloody name, come on. Ovi. Last name? Mahajan. Your birthday? 21st of January 2005. Proceeding to extraction. Two-thirds of a legendary New York rap group gather in Brooklyn to reminisce. Hello, everyone. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Adam. And I'm Mike, also known as Michael Diamond or Mike D. And we're Beastie Boys from New York City. And a much-loved children's book becomes a new Netflix production. But is this film really for kids? If you love stories about families that stick together and love each other through thick and thin and it all ends happily ever after, this isn't the film for you, okay? It's been more than five weeks since we last heard from the New Zealand International Film Festival. It was a tweet saying that they would have more to say in a week. It's totally understandable why they wouldn't have been able to follow through with that promise. Everything for many businesses seemed to change daily over the last month of lockdown. And my guess is that they're still hoping to run an event of some description in July, even though they won't know what it'll look like. As I mentioned on this program last week, with the slowdown of the global cinema release system, including Premium Art House, as well as the Hollywood blockbusters, and the postponement of the hugely important Cannes Film Festival, which was scheduled to start in a fortnight's time, it's hard to imagine the festival being able to find the 150 or so titles it would normally be able to offer us. This is not a problem that's unique to New Zealand, of course, even though by July our problems ought to be less about public health and safety than a cauterised supply chain. Sydney's Film Festival, which was scheduled for June, was cancelled a while ago, but they've joined up with a new initiative from some of the biggest global festivals to take a selection of their titles online. Led by Robert De Niro's Tribeca Festival from New York, the We Are One online film festival will run from the 29th of May for 10 days on the YouTube platform and will feature programming from festivals like Cannes, Venice, Sundance, Toronto and Berlin, as well as smaller and more boutique events like Mumbai, Karlovy Vary, Marrakesh, Tokyo and London. 
It's not clear from the initial announcement what calibre of programming this festival will involve. The latest and greatest are still likely to be held back for when the lockdown eases. But they do promise features, shorts and documentaries. And the festival will be free to stream on YouTube or if you prefer the organisers recommend a donation to the World Health Organization's COVID-19 relief fund. This might be an example of me being an old stick in the mud, but I'm not convinced that an online event like this can really be called a festival, though. Is it really a shared experience if you can a la carte your way through a series of digital menus whenever you feel like it? Part of the festival experience is that sense of joint discovery, the community coming together and watching even the best curated selection of films on a laptop should be given a different name, I reckon. It's a different thing. This gangster, Amir Osef, he holds a massive sway in Dakar. You get your hands on this kid, it's gonna get complicated. That's always complicated, isn't it? This was a mistake. Oh, Nick, what are you doing here? Don't bullshit yourself. No one else is gonna commit to something this fucked up. Why would you? I need the money. Chickens aren't cheap. You're hoping if you spin the chamber enough times, you're going to catch a bullet. Extraction, the new action thriller that has just arrived on Netflix, feels like an attempt to launch a hard-boiled, single-minded action franchise that would fill the same role at the movies that Jack Reacher does for the book world. It's well made, makes good use of unusual and in this case exotic locations and is not much interested in the interior life of its characters short of a single psychologically inciting incident that will probably define the central character for many episodes to come. Extraction is also a vehicle for the Australian actor Chris Hemsworth to have a franchise of his own. One that he doesn't have to share with a dozen other stars and one that opens up a little more of his range. After eight films as Thor, the God of Thunder for Marvel and Disney, this one is definitely not for the kids. From a charming muscle-bound buffhead with a death wish to a deadly serious muscle-bound buffhead with a death wish. You pays your money, you takes your choice, etc. We were played. Second transfer never came through. Ma John got us to do the heavy lifting and he doesn't want to pay. What about G? The whole team is dead. <laughs> City's on lockdown. You got cover? Yeah. And the kid. He's with me. There's a clearing on each side of Sultana Kamal Bridge. Just outside the city. We can send a chopper and get you out. How far? Four kilometers. You gotta leave the kid behind, Tyler. That's not the job. In Extraction, Hemsworth plays a former Special Forces dude called Tyler Rake, who is now drinking his life away in the outback of South Australia, waiting for the job that will either kill him or redeem him. He's a mercenary with a special talent, which appears to be a talent for taking a beating. 
They say that the hero of your film is always the character who suffers the most, and there's a worthy tradition of masochism in male movie stars going back decades. Brando, Stallone, Willis, the list is endless. Rake gets a job in the Indian subcontinent. The teenage son of an imprisoned Mumbai crime lord has been kidnapped by a rival. There's no money for a ransom, so Rake's job is to bring the boy home without one. But then it turns out that there's no money for his fee either. In Dakar, Bangladesh, not a city I've seen in too many big Hollywood blockbuster productions before this, and actually haven't this time because Dakar is portrayed in the film by the district of Banpong in Thailand. Rake and the boy, played by Rudraksh Jaiswal, find themselves alone and surrounded. Surrounded by local villain Amir's gang of loyal child street criminals on one side and his double-crossing employer Saju, played by Randeep Huda, with a Terminator-like indestructibility on the other. Rake has to get the boy across a road-blocked bridge away from the centre of town to where his helicopter escape route awaits. So where are we? We are south of the city centre... I told Nick that an extraction is its not feasible right now. The city's surrounded by rivers. There are bridges going in and out. But every one of those bridges currently is blocked by a roadblock because you are a very popular individual. I figured we lie low a couple days. We let the panic dissipate. And we'll get you gone. Extraction is written by Joe Russo and based on a graphic novel that he and his brother Anthony helped create. The Russo brothers are best known now for their work on the Avengers series, which is where they got to know Hemsworth, and also director Sam Hargrave, who was stunt coordinator on several of their Marvel pictures, as well as uh, films like The Hunger Games and Atomic Blonde. I didn't know this going into the film, but could have guessed early on. Hargrave shoots the action with supreme confidence, and his work, along with editors Ruthie Aslan and Peter B. Ellis, make those sequences zing along to the extent that you don't often realise quite how brutal much of the violence is. You can also tell that Hargrave is not much interested in any psychological drama. The quiet scenes are really only there so we can get our breath back before the next adrenaline rush. So for all the professionalism on display in the filmmaking, it's a difficult picture to like or even remember much of. Hemsworth, at the age of 36, shows that he's still in the physical shape to keep doing this for a while yet, but unlike the charm of his recent Avengers work and the flair for comedy he showed us in Ghostbusters in 2016, this is a one-note performance in a one-note film. Can I ask you something? It's Rake. What's Rake? My last name. That's not what I was going to ask. That's a strange last name, though. Isn't that like a gardening tool? What were you going to ask me? If you were always this way, you know, brave. I'm not brave, man. Extraction is rated 16+, plus, according to Netflix. They don't provide classification notes, but I can tell you that it is very violent and there's a lot of language, but there are very few women in it and therefore uh, no romance, so nothing to worry about in the sex department. It's streaming on Netflix now. Now, one day I walked in and I heard Yauk playing this awesome bass line. It was so good, it seemed like it must have been a song already. I was like, yo, Yauk, what is that? And he was like, it's ours. I just wrote it. 
So I sat down, I start playing drums with him. Then keyboard money Mark sits down, he starts playing the organ, and then Adam puts on his guitar, he starts to play. We made a quick arrangement and we recorded it. It was the fastest song we'd ever made. And it was kind of our favorite instrumental we had. But for whatever reason, it just sat around for months and months with no vocals. When we were getting ready to finish the record, we knew we had to do something with that song. We tried a bunch of different ideas to make it a rap song, but it wasn't working. And I had this idea that I would go to Mario C's house and he would record me screaming a bunch of stuff. Music documentaries don't tend to be the most experimental of art forms. Frankly, they can often be a bit samey. Interviews with talking heads cut alongside archive footage that illustrates the incidents they recall, concerts, studios, contracts, drugs. It's nice to come across a film that tries to take a different approach. In Beastie Boys' story, just arrived on Apple TV+, the subjects are all the same. Concerts, studios, contracts, drugs. But the format prioritises the voices of the group themselves, rather than commentators or other witnesses. The film is essentially a filmed live performance, not of the Beasties in concert, because, as Adam Horowitz, a.k.a. Ad Rock, says, they ceased to be a band when the third member, Adam Yauch, MCA, died of cancer in 2012. It's a spoken word reminiscence, designed to be filmed, but also designed for a live audience, and designed to bypass the usual gatekeepers of a band's story. This is defiantly first person, but to the remaining Beastie's credit, it's a story told with considerable insight and humility. Sucker MCs was everywhere in New York when it came out. You heard it coming out of cars, out of tape decks, out of pizza spots all over the city. Run DMC was the shit, and we wanted to be just like them. I mean, we studied every song, every lyric. We looked at every picture, trying to figure out their sneaks, their clothes, everything. We would study and repeat all our favorite rap songs all day. Not that we thought we'd ever be a rap group or anything, but around this time we started writing our own rhymes. I think now we're going to show a little example that shows kind of where we are at on Wait, the mic as MCs. You're, you're jumping, oh. ahead. You're jumping ahead, Mike. Oh, Mike, turn, turn around, Spike. Turn around. Really? Okay. All right, time out. Hey, oh, hey. Now, now, see, oh, wait, Spike? we're definitely in the wrong place. The Beastie Boys grew up in a New York music scene that was centered around the largely white boy world of what Americans call punk rock. That was a musical style that was a kind of distilled essence of the UK punk scene. But it didn't take the Beasties long to realise that there was an arguably more vital and certainly more indigenous music scene right on their doorstep. Hip-hop did not come easily to the Beastie Boys, but they were nothing if not game, and it is thanks to the self-interested guidance of Def Jam's Russell Simmons and the single-mindedness of producer Rick Rubin that that first album tore up the charts in 1986. Everyone in the business knew that a white rap group was going to be a license to print money, and so License to Ill was born. The Beastie Boys story stage show and the resulting film is directed by Spike Jones, collaborator on many of the Beastie's most memorable mid-career videos, like for the song Sabotage that we heard about a little earlier. 
Jones is something of a prankster himself, the director of, frankly, not enough feature films, but they include Adaptation, Being John Malkovich and Where the Wild Things Are. And there's a looseness about the Beastie Boys story that reflects the fact that neither he nor his Beastie friends have ever taken themselves too seriously. At least not since they got off the license to ill treadmill back in 1987, when they realised that the trap of a management Svengali and a guru producer was only going to hold them back creatively. For dedicated fans, many of these stories won't be new. But I'm not one of those people, so the even-handedness and willingness to share credit and blame, even when detailing how they were ripped off as naive young musicians, was one of the pleasures of Beastie Boys' story. We were burning out. In a flash, Beastie Boys went from being a funny tipsy guy with the lampshade on his head to the ugly drunk dude that people were trying to get out of their apartment. It's like that Bill Murray movie, Groundhog Day. You know, where he keeps living the same day over and over. But in our movie, it was the f***ing dick going up in the air at the end of every show. The problem was, we built the box and we're the dicks stuck inside the box it became how can we get through the show fast enough so the stupid dick can get back in the box and we can get the fuck off stage i'm not going to pretend to you that beastie boy story is one of the classics of the rock biopic genre its insights are more about what it's like to look back on these young and restless versions of yourself from the position of a comfortable middle age rather than detailed chapter and verse stories about how songs and sounds came to be, although there is a little of that. Some of the most interesting moments in the film are bits that a more detached director might have missed. It's ultimately about a lifetime of friendship, that recognition of when you didn't always do right by the people you love, but that you want to make it up to them now, if it isn't too late. Finally, I recommend you watch this film right to the end, because many of its greatest pleasures and surprises arrive after the final credits have finished. I'm not sure whether watching streaming films at home encourages sitting right through to the end of the credits or not. Netflix makes it almost impossible, but it's still something that we like to do at our house, and I think it's worth it this time. So when it comes to my friend the rapper Mike D, a.k.a. Sweet Lou, a.k.a. Michael Lewis Diamond, I know him, right? Like everything. And he knows me just the same. But Adam Yauk, a puzzle, a conundrum. A labyrinth of ideas and emotions, an enigma, a wild card. And after 35 years of friendship, I never knew what he was going to do or say next. He was a living contradiction of people's ideas of how or what you're supposed to be or do. I mean, he's the Buddhist guy who's telling me how last night he was at this after-after party for some fashion show. And he's the fight-for-your-right-to-party dude who went trekking through Nepal on some kind of discovery quest. And then he met with politicians in Washington, D.C., letting them know what he'd seen and what he learned. Beastie Boys Story is rated M, according to Apple. There's plenty of curse words and some adult themes. You can find it on the Apple TV Plus service, which has a seven-day free trial and is also free for a year when you buy a qualifying Apple product. Otherwise, it's $8.99 a month. If you love stories about families that stick together and love each other through thick and thin and it all ends happily ever after, this isn't the film for you. 
okay? I've come to believe that the biggest curse on this transition we are experiencing from theatrical cinema to a multitude of streaming services is that films are being rushed out to meet a market need rather than be developed and nurtured until they're ready to be shared. Maybe it's just a Netflix thing, but I've felt over and over again watching Netflix original productions that they just seem underdone. The Chris Hemsworth thing we talked about earlier, Extraction, is a case in point, and so is our second Netflix pick of the week, The Willoughbys, an animated family movie from Chris Pian, the director who made Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2, not 1. The Willoughbys is based on a kid's book by Lois Lowry, an award-winning writer for young people, and a book that reads like an honest homage to the weird, child-centred worlds of Roald Dahl. But then the film seems to jettison almost everything interesting from the original book in favour of a lot of noisy, messy, undirected new material that is as tonally confused as it is visually inventive. May we have food? Food? We eat today's food. You eat yesterday's food. But you ate all of yesterday's food yesterday? So there is no food left over for... Jane! My name is Mother. Who is this Jane? You call your mother names and you expect us to feed you? The Willoughbys are a once great family of high achievers who have fallen into decadence and decay because the current parents are so self-obsessed that they ignore their four children to an extent that is, frankly, abusive rather than endearing. The oldest of the four Willoughby children is Tim, voiced by Will Forte, desperate to restore the family's legacy of adventure and achievement, but not entirely sure what that even looks like in reality. Sister Jane, with the voice of Alicia Cara, who is genuinely imaginative and forthright, but destined to be underestimated, and the twins, both called Barnaby. When Jane discovers a foundling baby on their doorstep, she wants to take it in, but is instead persuaded to leave it on another doorstep, the candy factory, owned by the mysterious Commander Melanoff, voiced by Terry Crews. All the discussions about foundlings and orphans prompts the children to wish that they were orphans, and a plot to dispose of their awful parents by sending them on a long overseas holiday to the most dangerous places on earth is hatched. They don't realise that even their parents, played by Martin Short and Jane Krakowski, weren't going to leave them home alone. So a nanny is procured for them, played by Maya Rudolph. And like every other voice in the film apart from one, she's encouraged to dial everything up to beyond 11. There's no focus, no direction, no guidance. Everything and everyone is going at breakneck pace and there's no chance for anyone to stop and breathe, let alone the poor audience who are being bludgeoned by a story that wants to fit as many visual and verbal gags into as short a space as possible. And by actors who the director can't appear to say no to. Whoa, 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 whoa. You took in an orphan? Yeah, we did. But she was a baby and babies are the most childish children, so... We got rid of her. What? Back up the abuse caboose. Where'd you get rid of a baby? The perfect home. Oh, this is the worst home ever. Poor little orphan. I said there was one exception to this vocal cacophony, and it's Ricky Gervais as the cat narrator. He appears to be literally phoning it in, relying on his well-worn vocal mannerisms, but with none of the sugar-high energy that everyone else has. If only they'd shared the lollies around a little more equally. 
The Willoughby's is a visually inventive mess with quite a nasty subtext that might take some explaining for the younger kids who are most likely to enjoy the colourful animation. Maybe a Netflix subscription encourages those younger viewers to watch over and over again so that they'll slowly get to see all the rich background detail the animators have put in. But that implies that they'll love it enough the first time around, and I'm not sure that's going to happen. The Willoughby's is rated 7+, plus according to the Netflix scale, and is available for streaming on that platform now. I'd like to propose a toast. And that's our program. I've got one more recommendation for home viewing, and this is something you can find on YouTube for free, or for a small donation to the Broadway Performers Benevolent Charity, ASTEP. A couple of weeks ago on this program, I said we would focus on newly available feature films, and I was also somewhat disdainful of all of these lockdown, famous people in their kitchen videos being inflicted on an unsuspecting world. Well, this week I'm going to reverse both of those positions. But, as Beastie Boy Adam Horowitz says in the Beasties documentary we've just featured, I'd rather be a hypocrite than the same person forever. Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, is a two and a half hour delight featuring dozens of stars performing the songs of Stephen Sondheim, including Patti Lupone, Jake Gyllenhaal, Mandy Patinkin, and Bernadette Peters, all from inside their own personal lockdowns. This is one of the many highlights. We're listening to Christine Baranski, Audra McDonald, and Meryl Streep performing The Ladies Who Lunch from Company. I'm Dan Slevin, and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word, and there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen. I'll be back with more suggestions for home viewing at the same time next week. Perhaps a piece of Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.